0: In the darkness of the night of october 23rd 1731 a small fire started on or near the mantle of a fireplace in ashburnham house in london the tenants of the house tried desperately to control the fire with water and the london fire companies were summoned but to no avail the fire spread quickly to the wooden beams near the fireplace then up to the floor above breaking free of the wall of the upstairs room the fire began to burn locked cases of books from back to front the Cotton Library, an extraordinary and irreplaceable collection of manuscripts, scrolls, paper, parchment, and vellum documents, as well as all kinds of historical artifacts dating back a thousand years and more, was being consumed in smoke and flame. On that night, the only known original manuscript of the Old English Rune poem was destroyed. Podcasting from a heathen homestead in rural southwest Virginia, this is F is for Feo, a discussion of the runes known as the Old English Futhork. Produced by Golden Comby Kindred. Hi, and welcome to F is for Fail, an in-depth look at the Old English Rune Poem. I'm Steve, your host. Before we begin, I'd like to give a shout-out to Matthew. Thanks for writing to us, and thanks for listening. By the time of the Ashburnham House fire, which destroyed the only existing version of the Old English Rune Poem, the text was 900 years old. During that time, it had been copied once. That copy had been made in the late 1600s and published in 1705 as the study of Old English began to gain academic popularity. In this episode, we will be discussing the library which contained the Old English Broom poem manuscript, the fire that destroyed that manuscript, and the textual history of the poem, including how and when it was copied. We will also discuss what we do and don't know about the original manuscript, We will then put together a possible timeline for the poem from when it was first recorded until the present. The manuscript which contained the Old English Room poem was first recorded to exist in the possession of Sir Robert Cotton, whose collection was Cotton Library. So what was the Cotton Library? Sir Robert Cotton started the library which would bear his name in the late 1500s. An antiquarian, he was able to amass what would become a significant collection of important documents and artifacts starting in 1859 at the age of 18. These materials had been held in monasteries until the monasteries were dissolved under King Henry VIII, 48 years before Cotton began collecting material. Prior to this, monasteries were the repositories of important records and documents, but there was no organized system to catalog what the monasteries contained. When the monasteries were dissolved, their collections were often lost or destroyed. Sir Robert Cotton continued to build and organize this collection until his death in 1631, His heirs continued adding to the library until 1702, when the library was gifted to the nation by Sir John Cotton, Sir Robert Cotton's grandson. Shortly before the fire, the contents of the Cotton Library had been moved from their original location to the Ashburnham House. Ironically, this was done because the Cotton House was felt to be too risky for fire. That any of the collection was saved from destruction was due in no small part to the heroic efforts and forward thinking of the caretakers of the library at the time. When it became evident that the fire in the library was out of control, the librarians broke open the locked bookcases and ran out of the building with everything they could carry. They also opened windows and threw materials out onto the grass below. In the following days, children were tasked with collecting every tiny burned flake that could be found. These were carefully saved, even if totally illegible, and now comprise a separate collection known as the Cotton Library Fragmentarium. Within five days, Parliament had assembled a commission of experts who carefully examined all of the exa- surviving material. This commission recommended specific and detailed cleaning and preservation techniques, which were quickly acted upon. In the 1800s, additional conservation work was undertaken. These efforts have allowed continued study and restoration of materials from the library. Some burned fragments have even yielded readable text using current technologies and techniques. Although a devastating loss, a significant portion of the Cotton Library survived. These surviving materials from the library include almost 3,000 items, including the world's largest collection of old English manuscripts, maps, papal bowls, and state papers ba- dating from the 4th century to the 18th century. Also surviving is the only original copy of the Magna Carta bearing the royal wax seal of King John, although the seal is now partially melted. Surviving texts are written in Modern English, Middle English, Old English, Scots English, Cornish, Danish, Dutch, French, Anglo-Norman French, German, Greek, Irish, Italian, Portuguese, Russian, Spanish, Welsh, Arabic, Chinese, Hebrew, Persian, Turkish, and Inuit. The surviving materials in the Cotton Library would go on to form the original collection of the British Library. The Cotton Library was originally housed in a surprisingly small space, a room, maybe better described as a large hallway, measuring 26 feet long and 6 feet wide. Materials were kept in locked bookcases called presses. Robert Cotton was well aware of the value of his collection and allowed study of the materials and would even loan items out. He developed a unique but effective system of cataloging items in his collection. Items were ordered by reference to selections of busts of Roman emperors and ladies over the shelves, then by shelf, then by book or box location on the shelf. The amount of detailed information recorded about the Cotton Library since its inception has allowed us to know a good deal about the contents, even those items which were lost in the Ashburnham House fire. We know, for instance, that if a young Benjamin Franklin, who was in fact in London in 1725, had wanted to see the original medieval manuscript of the Old English Room poem, he would have been directed to the bookcase under the bust of Otho, shelf B, that is the second shelf down, tenth book from the left, leaf 165 in the text, front and back, or recto verso of that leaf. Otho, by the way, was Marcus Salvius Otho, who was a Roman emperor for four months from January through April 69 CE. The leaf that the poem was on measured 9 inches by 12 inches, and it was bound in with a text of saints' lives. Our hypothetical Ben Franklin could have even compared, side by side, the 9th century manuscript and the 18th century copy. We know that most of the rest of the manuscript containing the Old English Room poem dated from the early 11th century and was written and collected by Alfred Abbot of Einsham, and that the leaf bearing the Old English Room poem was not part of this collection originally. The Old English Room poem was first mentioned by Sir Robert Cotton himself in a 1621 catalog of his collection, where he notes that he had loaned to William Camden, who was an antiquarian, historian, typographer, and herald, quote, a Saxon book of various saints' lives and the alphabet of the old Danish letters, unquote, and implies this collection was from material he obtained from someone named Mr. Jocelyn. The reference to Jocelyn may refer to the manuscript having come into Sir Cotton's possession from John Jocelyn, who was the Latin secretary to the Archbishop of Canterbury, Matthew Parker, It is very plausible that it was Jocelyn, or Archbishop Parker, who inserted the page containing the old English rune poem into the volume in which it was contained, which otherwise dealt with the lives of saints. The Archbishop was known to rebind manuscripts to suit his own purposes, as would cotton. This was not an unusual practice at the time. The mention of Danish runes refers to the belief at the time that the runes were of Danish origin. Unfortunately, this does not give any indication of what text was actually on the page. The first record of what text was actually present was by Thomas Smith in 1696. In his description of the manuscript that contained the poem, he stated that he had found, quote, characters of a foreign alphabet as many as ten. Some of these appear to be similar to runic characters, unquote, in the Otho B-10 manuscript. Notice that this is a significantly different number than the 29 runic characters with verses and 9 additional runic characters without verses found in the copy Hickey's published in 1705. Nine years later. This raises the possibility that what we now consider the complete Old English rune poem was inserted between 1696, when Thomas Smith provides the first description of the manuscript contents and mentions 10 runes, and 1697, when Wanley made his copy for Hickey's. If this is so, then prior to 1697, some shorter list of runes stood in place of the Old English Rune Poem. It's also possible that, for whatever reason, the ten runes mentioned by Smith are actually the nine runes that Hickey's lists at the end of his printing the Old English Rune Poem, and Smith simply overlooked the rest of the poem. Or maybe the Rune Poem was not broken up into verses in the original, and Smith simply miscounted the number of runes present on the page in what would likely have been a very dense text because medieval scribes rarely left any significant blake space on a writing surface. Regardless of what was in the medieval text, the only existing copy was produced by George Hickeys, who had found himself on the wrong side of some political matters and was in hiding from 1691 until 1699. It was during this time that he decided to work on a thesaurus. This was intended to be a massive two-volume affair, although only one volume was ever published. That volume contains 844 pages, and includes a grammar for Old English, Old Icelandic, and Old High German, as well as a history of the English language. Most of the thesaurus is written in Latin. The Old English Rune poem occupies only a single side of a single page of this massive text. All subsequent publication of the Old English Rune poem are from this copy. Because he was unable to access the Cotton Library himself, Hickey's arranged for another scholar, Humphrey Wanley, to go to the library and make the necessary copies for him. This means, of course, the Old English Room poem that we read today is actually Hickey's copy of Wanley's copy of the manuscript found in the Cotton Library. So far as we know, Hickey's never saw the Cotton Library manuscript himself. This raises the question of how accurate Wanley in particular was in copying from the medieval manuscript. Fortunately, we can probably get a good idea based on other manuscripts that Wanley copied where both the manuscript and Wanley's copies survived. Wanley would correct scribal errors he found in the originals he copied from, but also made some copy errors of his own. Still, he was quite meticulous, and the Old English Room poem that Hickey's published based on Wanley's work is accurate enough to determine the dialect used in the original. It is possible that the Old English Room poem as we know it today never existed at all, Hempel in 1903 raised a concern that Hickey's, Wanley, or both copied, arranged, reformatted, or otherwise created the Old English Room Poem based on the rune information contained in the Cotton Domitian A10 folio 11 verso manuscript, making the Old English Room Poem as we have it today an 18th century invention. This is very unlikely given the congruence between the Old English Room Poem and the other two major rune poems the lack of reason to make such a fiction, and the lack of any examples of either Wanley or Hickey's engaging in such deception with any of their other works. It is possible that an earlier possessor of the manuscript, who also had possession of Domitian A. 10, made annotations to the poem and that these were incorporated by Wanley and Hickey's, but again it is unlikely that a medieval Old English Rune poem never existed. In structure, the Old English rune poem is like the Icelandic and Norwegian rune poems. It consists of a rune name, which is also the name of an object or idea, followed by a short verse about whatever the rune is. The name of the rune also incorporates the sound the rune makes, usually as the first sound of the rune name. All of the rune poems have this format, and all of the names of the runes in the three rune poems are analogous to one another. Although we know a good deal about the 9th century manuscript in which the Old English Rune poem was found, there are several things that we don't know. It's not clear how many of the runes in the Old English Rune poem manuscript were in general use during the runic period, nor how many were unusual local variants, or which ones were bind runes or perhaps non-runic, rune-like shapes. The purpose of the poem is not clear. It's been argued that it was an aid in memorizing the runes and their meaning, or the sounds the runes made but it would be much more practical to just memorize the rune and the meaning or sound rather than the much lengthier verse. The difference would be analogous to memorizing apples green and apples red hang from branches overhead and when they ripen down they drop rather than just A is for apple. It is also possible that the poem was a listing of aphorisms. If so, then the verses were not intended to aid in the memorization of the runes, but the runes were intended to aid in the memorization of the verses the Old English Rune poem may have been a form of riddle poem in which the description of the Rune was the hint and the Rune was the answer. If so, then the poem would originally have consisted only of the Rune descriptions and the listener would have been expected to fill in the Rune's name. It's not known if the poem existed as part of a preliterate oral tradition and, if so, why it was written down. Early scholars, including Hickey's, felt the rune poem was written by English monks to demonstrate to King Canute their mastery of Danish. Although this has since been discredited, no other significant theories have been put forth. How, then, did the Old English rune poem come down to us? What follows is a possible history based on the best available information and evidence, along with some admitted conjecture. Assuming that the rune poem existed as a traditional oral riddle, the poem could plausibly have been written down by a monk who's familiar with the oral tradition. This may have been under the influence of Aldhelm, the abbot of Malmesbury and bishop of Sherborne, or by Aldhelm himself. Aldhelm was a prolific author who wrote, collected, and recorded vernacular and religious riddles and lived in an area where the West Saxon dialect of Old English was spoken and very near to the area where the Kentish dialect was spoken. The linguistics used, as copied by Hickeys, suggest a West Saxon or Kentish origin of the Old English rune poem. Aldhelm, who was born around the year 639, would have grown up in a period of heathen resurgence in Wessex, which started when he was four and ended when he was 37. This was also very shortly after a heathen resurgence in Kent, which ended a few years before Aldhelm was born. It is unknown if Aldhelm was ever non-Christian. The only details of his youth that we have are that he described himself as having, quote, a rude childhood, even though he was a member of the Wessex royal family. He wrote that this rude childhood ended at about the age of 33, when he began to study with Hadrian, the abbot of St. Augustine's at Canterbury. The final consolidation of whatever work or works were used as source material into the Old English Room poem as a whole was likely complete by around the year 900, when Old English was still spoken, and when knowledge of the runes had not yet faded, but was giving way to the Latin alphabet. Around this time, a second scribe likely added the appropriate runic characters to the head of the poem verses, which were probably the only part of the Old English rune poem which was originally recorded. Also about this time, the rune names were added, providing the answer to the riddle each stanza of the rune poem poses, if it is, in fact, a form of riddle. The folio with what would become the Old English Room Poem then resided for about 400 years in a monastery until the dissolution of the monasteries by King Henry VIII, which was complete by 1541. The manuscript of the Old English Room Poem then came into the possession of the Archbishop of Canterbury. It was removed from whatever manuscript it was bound in, if it was not already loose and then reattached in a manuscript containing Alfred of Einsham's Lives of Saints, possibly by Jocelyn, who started working for Archbishop Parker in 1559. Although this seems to be an odd addition to a book otherwise concerned with saints, it's tempting to think that the poem was still remembered to have been associated with Aldhelm, who was venerated as a saint after his death. Although entirely conjecture, this would make the inclusion of the rune poem with the Lives of Saints more logical. The manuscript containing the Old English rune poem was then acquired by Sir Cotton sometime before 1621. It was then loaned to William Camden for an unknown period of time, but returned to Sir Cotton's collection by 1696, when Thomas Smith recorded some details of the manuscript. Humphrey Wanley then transcribed the rune poem in 1697, and this transcription was used by Hickey's to produce his version, which was published in 1703. Hickey's almost certainly changed the layout of the poem to have separation between the stanzas with the appropriate rune and rune name preceding each. For his publication, he had special copper plates made to print the runes along the side and bottom of the page. He may have added runes without stanzas from another source, including the nine extra runes which are at the bottom of the poem. These runes stand for O, L, D, W, N, X, F. O, and G. It's also possible that these runes were present in the original, of course. Although Hickey's lists these nine runic characters, below them in Latin he writes, quote, These characters, hastening to other matters, I leave to the studious readers to interpret. Unquote. If there was any additional information on these runes in the medieval manuscript, it was not recorded by Hickey's. The rune poem manuscript was then destroyed in the Ashburnham House fire in 1731. The surviving copy, found in Hickey's 1703 publication, languished for 117 years until being republished by Wilhelm Grimm in 1821. The Grimm edition gives a German translation of the poem, amidst the runes themselves, retains the room names, amidst all the runes that were not accompanied by a poetic verse, and numbers the verses. The next publication in English after Hickey's of the Old English Rune poem was in 1840, and it's based on the 1821 Grimm publication, with some additional reference to Hickey's work, including the reintroduction of the superfluous runes not accompanied by poetic stanzas. The first publication after 1703 to include the runes alongside the respective poem verse was another German edition in 1861. Additional German, French, and English publications of the poem were produced in the latter 19th century and early 20th century, each introducing various changes, including changing the order of the rudic characters, or omitting the runes and only publishing the poem stanzas. In 1942, Dobby published a copy of the rune poem in which he changed the layout of the poem to more closely match the layout of the Icelandic and Norwegian rune poem manuscripts. This is not entirely unreasonable, as it is very unlikely that the old English rune poem contained in Otho B-10 was laid out in the format published by Hickey's, and more likely that its format matched that of other similar medieval texts. The first detailed study of the Old English Room poem was not published until 1981. Additional studies of the Old English Room poem have continued into the 21st century. Today, one may find online, of course, any number of copies of the Old English Room poem, and there are several non-scholarly works that reprinted as well. These often show only the 29 verse-associated runes, and the translations of these verses are often based on a 1915 work by Dickens. Non-scholarly works may also include various numbers of runes with unattested or idiosyncratic meanings. The Old English Rune poem then was nearly lost entirely and forgotten repeatedly in the thousand years or more that it has existed. The oldest surviving copy is a little over 300 years old and leaves us with a number of questions. Maybe there is a 10th century manuscript still lying forgotten somewhere which contains the poem and which would allow us to compare it to the version which has been handed down to us. Until such a manuscript appears, however, we will make the most of the information that we do have. This has been F is for Feo, an in-depth discussion of the Old English Rune Poem. Please join us next time when we talk about the history of English with a particular look at Old English, the language in which the Old English Rune Poem was written. Thanks for listening to F is for Feo. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook at Golan Combi Kindred or online at www.golancombi.com. You can also email us at golancombikindred at yahoo.com. We may read questions, comments, or suggestions on future episodes.